Welcome to Cancer Out Loud, the cancer care podcast, a show featuring conversations with people living with cancer, caregivers, survivors, loved ones, and the bereaved. Cancer Out Loud illuminates topics like self-advocacy in the face of barriers to care, end-of-life arrangements, meaning-making, and how personal relationships are impacted by cancer. This podcast is produced by Cancer Care, the leading national organization providing free professional support services to anyone affected by cancer. Hi everyone, my name is Sam Fortune and I'm an oncology social worker at Cancer Care. Thank you so much for joining us for another episode of Cancer Out Loud, the Cancer Care podcast. Today we are joined by Sunita. She's here to talk about her experience with breast cancer and some of the challenges she encountered during this time. Would you like to start us off by telling our listeners a little about yourself and your cancer journey so far? Yeah, so my name is Sunita Harris and I was diagnosed with breast cancer at the age of 38 mm-hmm. in December, about two weeks before my 38th birthday. It was a very tough time because it was the winter and also the end of the first year of the pandemic. So that was very tough. And when I was diagnosed, I was misdiagnosed, which is a really, really scary thing. I decided to get a second opinion because originally I was diagnosed with metaplastic breast cancer. And the initial meeting that I had with the doctors, I just was not too particularly comfortable with the way that the meeting had gone. For example, when I was diagnosed, I just kind of felt like a number. And I was told basically that my cancer was very aggressive, that they would have to move pretty quickly, that I would have to do chemo because they were not sure about doing surgery first. And so it was kind of like I had an outer body experience because this was my first time even learning about breast cancer because no one in my family had had it. It was a very real experience at that moment. And almost to the point where there was just so many people in the room during my diagnosis. It was the doctor, the nurse, my brother was there. So it was just very overwhelming. Of course. And that experience just left me like my mind was in circles at the moment. To the point where, you know, I had to follow the doctor to her office. And when I got there, I was like, well, wait, what stage am I? You know, and it wasn't like a very comprehensive thing, even to the point where they were checking my lymph nodes, like when I was in the room and she was like, well, let me check your lymph nodes. And she was like, I'm going to stick you. And I was like, what is going on? She's like, I'm going to give you a biopsy right here on the spot. And that was just like very overwhelming. So all this is going on. And then I go to her office and she, and I asked her, okay, well, what stage am I at? And so I found out that was stage two. And then, you know, I just did not feel comfortable because it was very, it was like all over the place. I ended up telling her, hey, you know, I know that you've had X amount of years of experience. 
I also am going to get a second opinion just because it was recommended by family friends who had gone through it with like their parents and things like that. So I got a second opinion scheduled like literally the next week. And she had a lot of experience, basically told me like, if you stick with me, you know, it'll, I'll definitely take care of you and I'll take care of you like I would my dogs. And I was like, oh, that's an interesting comparison. (laughs) (laughs) To say the least. You know, I know people own dogs and things like that. And that was cool. But like, from my perspective, it didn't sit well with me. Mm -hmm. So I got the second opinion and I was just wondering like, okay, how is this new experience going to be? So I walk into the second opinion and it's just me and the doctor in the room for the breast exam. And it was very simple. Then she brought me to her office and she drew a diagram of like what the bre- the left breast looked like, which is where my lump was found. And basically my lump was around like five centimeters because I was stage two. And so they got all the information from the first place because they didn't do the original biopsy. So they had to just go off of what they had at the moment. So because I was diagnosed with metaplastic, I was told that the best option would probably be to do a mastectomy first and then do chemo and then radiation. So that was kind of the step-by-step process. So I was planning to go home before all this happened, like around Thanksgiving, but, you know, Christmas was coming up now because I stayed home to kind of take care of like the biopsy and everything. So when Christmas came, I ended up asking if I could go home. And so I went home under the impression that that was going to be the plan that the plan of action, surgery first, then chemo, then radiation. I come back from seeing my family before I get started with everything. And I go into my breast surgeon's office and she's like, we got all your slides and the pathology people are not convinced that you are diagnosed with metaplastic. We're going to schedule the surgery still and they're going to continue to look and get everything But if that happens to be the case that you do not have metaplastic, then we're going to switch everything and do chemo first. (laughs) Oh, my goodness. And then have surgery. I was like, oh, my God, this is so crazy. But one thing I appreciate is the fact that they were so thorough, even though they threw me for a loop. They had their (laughs) whole pathology team look at my slides just to make sure that I was doing the right treatment plan because- When it comes to cancer and the type, it's very crucial how you move about the treatment plan. So I was very appreciative of that. It also sounds too like, especially from when you were first diagnosed and then getting the second opinion, you had basically two separate experiences and how each doctor kind of approached your cancer. And that's also very important, like how you go forward and even coping with your cancer. Yeah. And the the doctor, the second meeting, as I mentioned before, it was very organized. But one thing that I remember as soon as I got in the room and my brother was with me, he flew here because my mother is disabled, so she couldn't be here. And my brother is just my best friend, basically. Mm -hmm. So he came with me to my appointment and immediately the doctor said, you're going to live, you're going to live a long life. I'm going to make sure 
that this happens because we're going to take care of this right away. And she gave me advice as if though she was talking to her sister. She was like, I'm telling you as if you were my sister. I would tell my sister the same thing. Mm -hmm. So it felt very comforting. And it also felt as if though she really cared about me. And so that was an entirely different experience. Ironically, you know, I'm a woman of color. She was a woman of color. And she explained to me how important it is for us to be seen and heard. And so I really appreciated that. And yeah, so that was that was my completely different experience. And I I am also a woman of color, so I can relate to like finding providers that you feel can understand your experience and feel that they care for you and they have your best interest at heart. And I'm sure too, that also kind of factored into like when you're dealing with your second doctor, dealing with that. Yeah. So that was really, you know, I wasn't seeking out a woman of color, but ironically I had got a woman of color as my breast surgeon and she was amazing. And I I, I almost felt very comfortable and assured when I walked out of the office, like, I'm going to trust her, even if it flip flops the decision of like the treatment plan, I'm going to trust her because she's so thorough and she's so on point with like telling me the truth and being honest and also giving me an ounce of hope because when you're in this situation, the last thing you want to hear is your breast cancer is aggressive. We have to move forward. You know, you don't want anything that it's already a scary experience, but if someone can tell you the information in a more graceful way, if they can tell you the information that you are going to make it, that if you do the right steps, you will have a better chance because that is a number one reason why a lot of women in general, especially women of color, do not go get checked when they originally find out because number one, they're scared Mm -hmm. of the diagnosis. And number two, they just don't feel comfortable, you know, with the medical doctors. A hundred percent. Yeah. So, and I know, especially with my clients who are women of color, they express too. And I don't know, I'm sure you'll talk about this too. They felt like a lot of their feelings were dismissed. And you, I think you hinted on it earlier too, when you say like the, with the first doctor, you kind of felt like you were a number and you couldn't even ask questions or even give given that space to process what was going on. Yeah, I agree. And I didn't even have a conversation with my original doctors about even fertility till I had my second opinion and talked to my current oncologist. And my current oncologist was willing to allow me to wait an additional week before I started chemo because of how important it was to me to look into the possibility of freezing my eggs because I am 38. So I'm on the cusp of almost being 40. So it was very important to me to kind of figure that stuff out. And I'm glad she brought that up because that is another issue I've heard, like, especially with African-American women, a lot of the times fertility is not discussed and they're pushed to do treatment right away without getting all the right information. And then from there, they basically their choice is taken away or whether or not to have children. 
So I'm glad you were able to have that environment and have the opportunity to make that choice for yourself. Yeah, I have heard several stories, even more recently, as I'm seeing other women going through the same experience. I'm seeing survivors share that story where they didn't get the option. And now they don't have the option to have children because either they've gone into early menopause or their menstrual cycles haven't come back due to chemo. And so with that said, just even having the option, that was a luxury to me for someone to kind of tell me about it. And not only that, but even to be willing to write me letters so that I could potentially get grants from like different organizations like Live Strong and several other organizations that I didn't even know about that would kind of help women out. So that was also helpful. I know you say it sounds like your doctor was very helpful with giving you the information you needed and kind of help you make the best informed decision for yourself. How was the rest of the treatment team and especially after your surgery and then you starting chemo and you kind of phase into that next step? Did you feel like you were supported by your treatment team? Did you feel like there are times that things weren't answered or whatnot? Yeah, so I ended up changing my treatment plan. So originally I was going to have a mastectomy and I had to meet with the entire team, the plastic surgeon team, as well as the oncologist. So that was like my initial meeting. And everyone was so nice in explaining everything and how the process would be. Fortunately, I did not have the surgery right away, so I did not have to do the mastectomy. And I opted for a lumectomy because after my chemo, my tumor shrunk. And so my doctors gave me the, the choice. And some people don't have the choice and some women don't feel like they have a choice. They, they don't feel like that. Or can't I, even ask to have that choice. Yeah, so... I didn't even know that I had the choice either. I just thought I had to get a mastectomy. So when the option came up to have a lumectomy, just, you know, based on the the location of the tumor and the type of breast cancer that I had, the percentage was around the same if I did the lumectomy with radiation. So that was the option that I decided to go And the reason why was because, like I mentioned before, I'm still young. And if I do have a child, I would prefer to breastfeed. And so that was very important to me was to be able to have that option. So I was very thankful for that. And my team was just so helpful. Like even the plastic surgeon team, they offered me a clinical trial because once you have surgery, there's a possibility that you can have lymphedema. Mm-hmm. And they offered me a clinical trial that would kind of help that. So that was amazing that it, it just felt as if though it was like an option that they had given to everyone. So it didn't make me feel like I was excluded. I felt very included and very heard and seen across the board. So that was amazing. Mm-hmm. And that's like an ideal treatment situation because it's already stressful enough hearing the word cancer 
and then going through treatment. So the fact that it sounds like you were supported and guided every step of the way, I'm sure that made your experience easier to deal with overall. Yeah, it made it very easy to deal with. And once I found out that I was going to do chemo, so ironic, I had a sigh of relief because it's a major decision to think about having a mastectomy or breast reconstruction. So to have the possibility to have chemo first, so that at least I can take my time to think about that decision was was amazing because most women who are diagnosed with cancer, it's literally two minute decision that you have to make every other day. Like you don't have time to think about it. So it was very amazing that I was able to have some time to, to think about the direction that I wanted to go in. I agree. And what would you say was the hardest challenge you endured during this process? I think the hardest challenge was trying to balance everything together in terms of now you have this disease and you think about how people are going to look at you. You think about how it affects your family. Me being a single woman, very career driven, now it affects my ability to work. It affects my ability to be social with my friends, especially everything being within a pandemic. So I've already had to adjust Mm -hmm. to a different lifestyle. And now I have to adjust to an even more different lifestyle in terms of being very careful and not being social during this time so that I won't get sick or compromise anything with my health, if that makes sense. It does. And I know a lot A lot of people have struggles with that, especially since I'm sure it's hard for your friends to see like when you can't go out as much because you have to be cautious since you're new compromised. It's kind of hard explaining why you're a little bit more hesitant than most. Yeah. And one thing I will also say that it's kind of like our society as women, we are very strong, independent. and. Mm-hmm. For the longest time, my family would always ask me, oh, when are you going to have kids? When are you going to get married? And I was always in my mind, I have plenty of time for all of that. I'm not letting anyone rush me. I don't want to settle. And then you get a cancer diagnosis and you go, whoa, maybe I should have tried this or that or had children earlier. So it makes you question every every decision that you made prior to that. And I think also with the cancer diagnosis and like how you grow as a person through it puts a lot into perspective of what's important in life. Yes, I would say I have grown so much. And when I look at myself in the mirror, I even feel like I look different. I look at my old pictures And I don't even know the person that I was before. And now I think about things so different. And I believe that women who have gone through this are probably very easily able to let those things that don't matter as much go and move toward things that they're passionate about, things that excite them. It's kind of like that Netflix show, Tidying Up. 
Mm-hmm. Hold on to the things that bring you joy. Let go exactly. of the things that don't bring you joy anymore. <laughs> I love that quote. Yeah. And I definitely think that's like a great mindset to live by. And I think also too, you mentioned earlier, as women, we have to be strong. And I know, especially for like women of color, that's kind of like how we are portrayed as like, str- we have to be like strong black women. And I know some people felt like it was hard being associated with that, especially like going through the cancer treatment. Did any feelings come up for you? If someone mentioned you're strong, you got this. Yeah, so I agree with that. And since my journey started, I was actually working on a very important campaign with Susan G. Komen at my job. And so it was divine intervention that I was diagnosed and I was working on the Susan G. Komen account on a big campaign that they had that was targeted towards women of color to help in health disparities. And so because I was working on this work when I got diagnosed, I decided that I was going to tell my story. And typically in the Black community, if someone is diagnosed with cancer, and this is, and I'm like dating like my parents' generation, they don't talk about it. You won't even know that they had gone through anything because no one talks about it. And so I wanted to change that for this generation, for us to talk about it, for us to let people know, hey, go get a mammogram. If you feel something, go get a mammogram, go and do it quickly. Because the more we talk about it, the more we speak about it, people can get diagnosed at earlier stages and save lives. That is the most important thing to me now is not wearing that hat like, oh, I'm a strong, independent Black woman and I can hold everything together. And the, and the second thing was allowing myself to be helped. Oh my God, I've been helped so much. Yeah. <laughs> it's always hard because like, especially, you know, we're told we have to work harder. We have to be this, we have to be that. So asking for help is also making us vulnerable in that sense. Yeah. And I remember when I was getting the biopsy done, I didn't tell anyone. And I had to call my friend because they told me I had to have someone with me. And I cried like a baby. And I said, I've never done this before, but can you please go with me? It's so hard for me to ask you this. And after she came with me, I decided like, if this is going to be something that I have to do, I am going to have to get help. So once I told my story, all my friends, old coworkers, everyone reached out. And from that, I was able to get so much support. My friends started a GoFundMe for me. My family came out here every month. And then even people who were my friends just out of the blue text me, hey, you want me to go with you to chemo? And it was the most amazing journey ever. Even friends that I hadn't talked to in years, or maybe we had a falling out, we reconnected and like, I've had so much love. So it definitely was a full 360 degrees of getting help, love and support. That's amazing to hear. And especially just asking for that help once and for that trickle down to happen. 
Absolutely. And I don't regret it. <laughs> oh, good. And I think it also makes, it makes going through the emotions and like the process, not easier, but it gives you that kind of feeling that you're not alone and you don't have to fight this alone. Absolutely. I ended up doing 16 rounds of chemo and thinking, oh, how am I going to get through this? So every week I went on social media and I did an an act of kindness challenge. Mm -hmm. And so many people participated and that kept me going. So that support kind of helped me to keep my mind off of everything that I was going through. People doing meal trains for me, people sending me gifts and flowers. And that just made my day every day. If anyone is listening, thank you so much. I don't know how to repay anyone, but thank you. It definitely kept me going. That's amazing to hear. And I know too, like having that support, especially like when you're having like the dark days or like you feel like you can't go on, you remember like these people are in your corner. These people are pulling for you. Yeah, that was definitely the key was the support system For example, my father had never even been to New York. And when this Mm -hmm. happened, he got on a plane and came here. So that was amazing. He doesn't tell me this, but I know he's afraid to get on the plane. Oh, no. Yeah. But hey, he came. Yes. And that says a lot. Yeah. Amazing. (laughs) And I know you mentioned this early, especially like you kind of say back to our generation, like older generations of people, especially African-Americans afraid to kind of speak up when something is wrong why do you think that is and besides like spreading the word what do you think are some ways people especially our generation can do to encourage them to speak up more yeah so I think that the older generation they feel a sense of embarrassment when something like that happens in the family oh I have been diagnosed with cancer this doesn't happen to my family. I don't want anyone to know about it. I have to be strong because I don't want my family to cry. So I have to carry all of this on my back. And it, it comes from slavery. We're taught to be tough, to take the lickings Mm -hmm. and not share with anybody. And it does us a disservice because I had fibroids when I was in my 20s and my 30s and I found out that my aunt had fibroids before and I found out once I had them that is not how we should find out when something happens because fibroids you can't really do genetic testing but if it was breast cancer I could have done genetic testing I could have been well aware that something would happen and that would have prompted me to start it to start getting mammograms sooner. Mm -hmm. That is why it's important for the older generation to start to talk about that. And not only that, but this newer generation, there's a group that immediately when I was diagnosed that I ended up joining on Facebook called Breast Cancer Baddies. Mm -hmm. And it's so, they rally so much support resources, everything like that, that I need, that I needed through this journey. And if we have more of that, then people won't be afraid when they get a diagnosis, because most of it is fear and you will feel more comfortable and more comfort when you're going through any dark situation, 
if you have a community, a fellowship to get you through it, because it's like our ancestors need to hold us up on their shoulders and not hold us down. Moving forward, we need to start lifting each other up on our shoulders and carrying each other across the hard times, especially with a cancer diagnosis. I agree. And especially too, and I know I read this on Susan G. Coleman's website too recently about how Black women, especially young Black women, are still the population who are dying the most out of all the demographics for breast cancer. And I do think a lot, especially the women who get diagnosed younger, they're the ones who are diagnosed at a more advanced stage. How do you feel about that? Because I'm sure you see that, especially doing the campaign and talking about health disparities and whatnot. Yes, that was a statistic that I read before I was diagnosed, when I was getting the biopsy done, because I was working on the account, Mm -hmm. and then afterwards. And so it was kind of crazy to see that statistic during each phase that I was going through. And what it spoke to me was that if Black women are 40% more likely to die as compared to white women, that is definitely an issue. And the issue is that we lack funding for mammograms because depending on where you live, that could determine why women are getting diagnosed later because they're not offered mammograms. Some of the medical doctors have biases, so they won't offer the same services that they would to a woman who is not of color. If a woman is feeling a lump, they may just brush it aside and tell them, hey, you're too young, it's probably a cyst and not further investigate. And so that's why we have to learn to advocate for ourselves. But not only that, each medical facility has to be aware of their biases and commit to inclusion, commit to helping everyone and treating everyone the same. And if a person can't afford a mammogram, there should be mandates where local, state, government, has to pay for it because we're talking about a life and no one should lose their life because they can't afford it because they can't pay for a mammogram and be afraid because they can't take off work for it. Mm -hmm. I agree. My observations, I also noticed too, especially like in African-American communities, basically there's limited clinics to even do the mammograms. So then that might discourage someone who may be interested, but they don't want to wait or they can't afford to wait. So that also kind of interplays with that as well. Yeah. And one of the biggest downfalls for women, once they do get diagnosed, is that they have lack of transportation. So now you're diagnosed and you're saying, oh, I have to go to chemo. I have 16 rounds of chemotherapy. I have 30 rounds of radiation, how am I going to get there? And then it becomes so overwhelming that people just, they may miss their appointments because they couldn't get a ride. And so there should be services offered for transportation. So it depends on where you live. Susan G. Komen did a study with the Fund2 Foundation, and there were 10 major cities that were affected in terms of having very, very high disparities. 
And so in those communities, they were affected the most because of things like that, like transportation and not being able to afford to get the mammograms and, you know, not for nothing. It could also be having a babysitter who's going to watch my child, et cetera, et cetera. And I also noticed the education and like the health literacy piece. And especially people who don't have educational backgrounds, they're not understanding like the medical terms and even some doctors, especially dealing with people of color, kind of rushing them or not using proper terms for them to understand. And people of color being afraid to ask questions because they don't want to be perceived as dumb. I think there's so much here and I want to keep the conversation going. So we're going to pause here and continue another episode together. Talk to you all soon. Thanks for listening to Cancer Out Loud, the Cancer Care Podcast. Cancer Care is the leading national nonprofit organization providing free professional support services, including case management, counseling, support groups, educational resources, and financial assistance to anyone affected by cancer. You can visit us online at cancercare.org or call our toll-free Hope Line at 800-813-HOPE. That's 800 813-4673 813-4673 to speak with a master's prepared oncology social worker.